The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This has bugged me all my life, so I don't think I'm going to have solved it in one book. But how could the nation of Bach and Goethe, this extraordinary place that could produce music and literature of those sorts, how could it have allowed a man like Hitler? And we can explain it. We can explain it easily in many respects. You know, we can provide narratives which explain it. But we still somehow, deep down, face this extraordinary question of how is it possible for people to actually do this. That was Mary Fulbrook discussing the Holocaust. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe Or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This Sunday, the 27th of January, is Holocaust Memorial Day. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the Nazi genocide with two expert historians. Mary Fulbrook is Professor of German History at University College London and she's recently written a book entitled Reckonings, Legacies of Nazi Persecution and the Quest for Justice. She discussed some of the book's themes with Richard J. Evans, who is Regis Professor Emeritus of History at Cambridge University, and himself the author of several works on the Third Reich. The two historians met up in London a little while back, and here's how their conversation went. Uh, Well, I'm Richard Evans. I'm a historian of Nazi Germany and modern Europe. My most recent book on that field has been The Third Reich in History and Memory. And I'm Mary Fulbrook. I'm Professor of German History at UCL and have written many books on different aspects of German history, the latest of which we're about to discuss now. So would you like to tell us something about the book, Mary, why you came to write it? It's better start with the title, I guess. The book is called Reckonings, Legacies of Nazi Persecution and the Quest for Justice. 
And I guess it interested me initially from two quite different perspectives. One was an awareness that the legacies of the Holocaust persist across generations, and I wanted to explore that in more detail. The other was an enduring sense of injustice in that it seemed to me, particularly from my previous book, A Small Town Near Auschwitz, Ordinary Nazis and the Holocaust, it seemed to me from that book that those who were intrinsically involved, deeply involved in the ways in which the Holocaust was possible without themselves being frontline killers had somehow got away with it. And I wanted to explore in more detail and on a much broader canvas what happened to people who were involved on both sides of the divide, both among those who persecuted and those who were persecuted. And then what the longer-term significance was for the next generation. So, yes, that, I mean, that leads to the interesting and rather puzzling question that, um, as, as you say, actual survivors of Nazi persecution, people who had to go through it and managed to come out of it alive, um, uh, and also, of course, the perpetrators at the time as well, they are now, as it were, leaving the stage of, of history. They're all very old and... Um, in a few years' time, there won't be any left. Um, but rather contrary to what you might think, what you might call the public or cultural memory of the Holocaust actually seems to be getting stronger, seems to play a bigger part in contemporary culture, not, uh, not vanishing. So how would you explain that? That's mm -hmm. one of the sort of features of your book that you, you, you pointed out. How, yeah, why yeah. Do you think that is? I liken it a bit to a mushroom cloud where there's an initial explosion of violence and then the mushroom broadens and broadens and descends over far wider areas than the initial explosion of violence. I think there's a generational dynamic at work here. I think in the early decades after the war, people were dealing with the very real immediate legacies inflected by Cold War considerations, building new states and so on. And it's taken a generation to get both the distance from it, but also the will to confront it. And you can easily write a history, a very simplistic, in my view, history, which dates it in relation to specific cultural events which were important. The TV miniseries Holocaust, for example, in 1978 in America, 79 in Europe, was incredibly important in opening it up for discussion and indeed spreading the use of the word Holocaust to mm. refer to it. And that was, uh, if I can just interrupt, that, that was a kind of TV miniseries that dramatised the experiences of both a Jewish family under the Nazis and also seemingly an ordinary, quite nice German man who then turns mm -hmm. bit by bit into a, a sadistic, ruthless killer. And so in a way, it's sort of the Holocaust of soap opera, um, which brings it home to people yes. in a way that a documentary can't do. Yes. So it brought it into people's living rooms and that precipitated a wide conversation. I think that was undoubtedly important and there were subsequent cultural phenomena which are also important. Schindler's List, for example, Steven Spielberg's film or Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, which also occasioned a lot of discussion. But I think there's something underlying this much bigger, which is the generational shift. A second generation <coughs> who were not themselves directly involved in the events wanted to confront and address and explore what was going on in a way that was different from the experience of those who lived through it. They were not any longer 
um, the perpetrators, but the children of perpetrators who wanted to know how was it this could have come about? How were people involved? Not necessarily their own parents, but nevertheless, they wanted to look at it. So that was also in a, an even broader cultural context. I think after the Vietnam War, the recognition of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, meant people were more willing to look at victimhood as something that was not to be shunned, but rather to be registered and explored. People were more interested in the stories of the whole person. I think when we talk about, as some scholars have done, the era of the witness in the 60s and 70s, these are people who are witnesses to events, to crimes committed by others. So they were witnesses in court to what others had done. I think from the late 70s, 1980s onwards, we enter the era of the survivor, where people were interested in the whole life stories of those who'd been through it and what it meant for them. Um, so I think these broader cultural shifts, along with technological changes, the rise of video testimony and so on, really precipitated a growing exploration of the phenomenon in a way that wasn't possible in the early post-war years. I mean, you can understand um, the kind of generation who grew up in the 50s and 60s confronting their parents uh, either with what they'd suffered as victims and wanted to know more about it or confronting them uh, as perpetrators. Why, why had they done these things? And that's one of the things I think that fueled the student rebellions of 1968 because a lot of the professors in universities had been there during the Nazi period. Um, but what about the next generation? I mean, we've now gone through another generational shift and how can you explain the interest in, in the third generation? I, I think um, you've elided two things there. I think the children of victims very often did not confront their parents. They, they respected parents' decision to remain silent, not to narrate too much about a painful past. But I think what happens is in the mid-70s, from the mid-70s onwards, the so-called second generation in survivor communities suddenly became aware of the fact that they were in some way different, that they were marked by this past, a past which they often knew very little about and needed to explore just to understand they felt unplaced. They needed to explore where parents or grandparents had come from. They needed to understand why there were certain neurotic twitches of one sort or another, wearing too many coats to school, even on a hot day, or yeah. eating up. So I think that's a quite different phenomenon. I think the children of perpetrators... Yeah, as you say, confront is probably... Yes. Confront's the wrong word, yes. obviously. It's I think the children of perpetrators, there's something else going on. Um, it depends when you were born and what you knew about your parents. If you were born during the Third Reich and you were a child of perpetrators then, you might have a quite different view of matters than if you were born well after the war yep. in a quite different system. Um, if you didn't know what your father had done, and it usually was fathers who had done obviously unspeakable things, uh, you might be torn between wanting to know and not wanting to know, wanting to not know, because you wanted to continue to love and respect your parents while at the same time rejecting absolutely what they'd done. So I think in that generation, there was a lot more generalised attack on the parental generation rather than on one's own specific father. It was too difficult very often within the family to confront it. And what you get frequently in those families is one person confronts it and the rest of the family members say, don't dirty the nest, don't go there, don't do this, and it creates huge family tensions. So there are a lot of family tensions going on in that second generation. 
when it gets to the contemporary, the third generation, um, I think we're talking about, when I use that metaphor about the, the mushroom cloud, I think we're talking about a generational half-life. Mm-hmm. So by the third generation, it's already fading in immediate significance. Mm-hmm. Many people may be interested. They've got the emotional distance to explore in a way that the immediate children of perpetrators didn't. The grandchildren can say, I would like to know what grandpa did in the war. And so I think there is a very different relationship with the past in that third generation Mm. but I think there are more things going on because it's not only about finding out it's also implications for the present and the future and one of the things that struck me is how many second and third generation Germans have a very heightened moral sense of responsibility of what it is they should be doing to make a better world subsequently. Mm. Many of them go into professions like teaching or social work or psychiatry in a sort of healing and helping mode. Mm. Even if they can't change the world, they'll Mm. do their little bit, whereas others just turn their backs on it and don't want to know. And So it's, it's quite an interesting and variegated set of responses to this past. And, and does that, um, I mean, do, it does, how does that relate to where the professional historians have been writing, professional historians, museum directors and so on? Because if you think of the way in which the, um, uh, the involvement of different professions in Germany in the Holocaust has been exposed bit by bit until quite recently. So now it's still going on with the first serious investigations of the involvement of the big ministries, the big state ministries, the finance ministry, foreign office came out about 10, 10, 15 years ago. Um, Before that, it was the army, which led to, of course, the crimes of the Wehrmacht uh, demonstrations against this exhibition that showed that the, the, the German armed forces have been heavily involved in, in, in the Holocaust and the doctors and so on. And that's been going on right through the 80s, 90s and 100s. And do you think that has an effect in a kind of repeatedly bringing home to younger people, the third generation, if you like, this involvement of their grandparents now in, in the Holocaust? I think the crimes of the Wehrmacht <coughs> exhibition undoubtedly did. That undoubtedly opened up a cross-generational conversation between grandchildren and grandparents' generation because I think that was showing... I mean, 17 or 18 million young men had been soldiers who had been, in principle, mobilised into positions where they might have been involved in atrocities. And so that undoubtedly opened up a huge conversation. I think the official engagements with um, the Foreign Office or the various other ministries has been slightly different and more muted in its implications. And that bothers me too, actually, because I think there was far more responsibility in places like the Ministry for Labour Mm. um, in organising and facilitating slave labour and actually looking at it in terms quite explicitly in some cases of are these people still useful, can we select them for labour or are they not so useful in case, in which case do with them what you will. And that kind of complicity, indeed I, I think that is verging on a form of perpetration, um, is something which I think the third generation is not really getting confronted with because that hasn't fed through to museums. It's fed through the historical profession in big, fat books that dedicated historians will read or debate even without having read. But the findings of this will hit the national newspapers and there will be public 
um, controversy about it in serious newspapers, but I think museums are still portraying a pretty simplistic picture of who were the perpetrators. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that is not hitting young people, third, even fourth generation, or mm. children of other groups not involved with perpetrator communities. You know, it, it is a big difference that now, uh, since the mid-1990s probably, you can go to museum sites uh, which are highly educational, not just concentration camps, which you couldn't really before. There were sort of Christian memorials like Dachau or rather sort of hidden underneath the carpet like Sassenhausen if they're in former East Germany. Um, and now you've got Hitler's former... Mountain retreat is being turned into mm. museums. There's an enormous amount of educational mm. work that's been going mm. on mm. just in the last quarter of a century or slightly, slightly more. Mm. Yeah, that is true. And I think in the history of memorialisation, it's very interesting that the early years after the war, it was people who were emotionally deeply torn up by what had happened, who were desperate to put memorials up to lost family members or groups with which they identified. And then there was a long-ish period, depending on which country you were in, where you were, in which there was a considerable struggle, a bit of a battle to get memorials up. But I think what can be said about all of them until the 1990s was that memorial sites and museums, by and large, had a a narrative which went, remember the victims, whichever group it might be, and pointed at just a few perpetrators but didn't really represent the broad system of perpetration. I think that changed with, for example, the Topography of Terror Museum, which had faced considerable battles to get established in the first instance when it was founded in 1987, is now properly established as a site where you can look at this. And recently there have been more and more. But there is... I mean, so to say the Topoki of Terror is is a museum that was set up on the site of the former uh, Gestapo headquarters in in Berlin, right, which is about... It's in the sort of central government area. And previously, actually, it was the Prussian Art History Library. Um, so, and that, rather than being built on, as so many of those sites are in the centre of Berlin, um, it, it's been turned into a museum where people can learn enormous amount about the uh, about the about the Gestapo and the crimes of Berlin. It has a very interesting history in that it was hard up against the wall, right next to yeah. Checkpoint Charlie, and it was used as an area for people to do driving lessons and practice driving on in in the 1980s. And then when they started digging, thinking they would build something there, they discovered the Gestapo cellars and they discovered that this was a site of historical interest and that was when the serious battles began about could this remain a historical site or would it be built on and then it took quite a a challenge and quite a controversy Mm. before it was decided Mm. it would be turned into a permanent memorial Mm. and museum site but if you if you look at these and other more recent sites um the Berghof which you mentioned that's a very interesting one because What is true of all sites associated particularly with Hitler is that for decades after the war, they risked becoming shrines for former Nazis. I can remember going to the Berchtesgaden and to the site of the former Nuremberg rallies in Nuremberg in the late 70s, early 80s, and seeing old men in raincoats with a thermos flask sitting there thinking about the good old days and reading the Nationalzeit of the very... So I think, again, it's a generational thing that we've now got the distance that we no longer need to worry as much about former Nazis, although we probably do need to worry about neo-Nazis and new right-wing groups. But it's very, very 
sensitive how you do sites relating yeah. to perpetrators. Yeah. I think myself that one of the solutions could be to build in more broader exhibitions about who was involved in making certain kinds of crime possible um, rather than always just having a few fit pictures of SS and Gestapo yeah. and many, many survivor testimonies, which is what you usually get in, yeah. in memorial sites. Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly if you, if you try and find the, the, the site of Hitler's bunker in Berlin, it's really quite difficult. It's hardly signposted anywhere. And when you do get there, it's div- the, the, the ground above it is divided between a children's playground and a car park. So, and you know that it used to be in the no-man's land between yeah, the two yeah, sides of the wall. Exactly. And for many years, I used to go up on one of those little watchtower thingies with my children and point down and say, you see that bump in the ground there? That's where Hitler's bunker yeah. used to be. And they used to laugh at me. Yeah. And then yeah. after the wall fell down, they'd become adults. I took them there and said, look, here is actually a placard saying this is what was below the ground yes, here. And that's the children. Yes, yeah. yes. So that's a very so funny one. It is a problem. It, yes. yeah. And yeah. the Nuremberg rally site is also... I mean, again, there were plans for that to be bulldozed. Um, but then this is the perpetual problem of memorials of bad things, as it were, is if you bulldoze them all, then you're forgetting, you're obliterating yes, it. Yes, yes. So you need to find some kind of compromise, yeah. Yeah, as yeah. you say. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. I just want to turn to the kind of concepts we're using here, victim, perpetrator, bystander. You, you do employ these categories and they've become very widespread. Um, I've always had my doubts about them because it seems to be treating the Holocaust as if it's a, just a crime. You're, you're importing the language of the courtroom into history. And I think your book does a lot to kind of complicate these categories, really, because uh, you cannot say, here's a perpetrator, here's a victim, here's a bystander. Mm-hmm. They're often mixed up uh, in, in different ways. You know? So I wonder if you could sort of say something about how you deal with these categories and whether you think they're still useful. OK, I think the easiest of the three is victim. I think if you're herded into a gas chamber and killed, you are a victim. I think that is just indisputable. It's somewhat more problematic when you look at different categories of victims who are also, for example, um, informing on fellow Jews in hiding to the Gestapo and they are in the grey zone and all that. So we can go down that route if you want to look at that. But I think that's a much less... um, (coughs) I think people were facing what Lawrence Langer once called choiceless choices Mm. in conditions of extreme constraint and oppression. So I think the victim category 
is okay. The perpetrator category, I have many, many problems with because I think what we have is a process through which people were drawn into um, committing acts of perpetration at one moment, whereas at another time they might even be a rescuer, they might be assisting a Jew in hiding, then when they discover the Germans are coming, they decide better kill the Jew. You know, there are many, many complications. Um, I also think that it's too individualistic a term which has posed problems for legal systems like the West German legal system and its very individualistic notion of what is a murder. Uh, But I think perpetrator too is a useful term. The third of the terms, bystander, I find the most problematic of the Mm. lot. I think it's been very badly misused in a lot of historiography. Um, It's very often in Raoul Hilberg's work, for example, used as a ragbag category um, for moral castigation. Why didn't people, institutions, nations, churches do more when they could have done and didn't, but just stood idly by? I don't think it's a good category in that sense. But it is, I think, a very important area for research, and it's in fact what my next book will be on. I'm working on that now. (laughs) Um, Because I think that the way in which the wider population who are not themselves directly actively involved in an act of violence, nor are the direct targets of that act of violence, how they respond to it is incredibly important in the dynamics of the situation, Mm. tipping it potentially in one direction or a quite different direction. Mm. And therefore it's very, very important to understand in an enduring system of collective violence, which is what this was, it's very, very important to understand how people who were part of that system developed, changed and reacted when they saw specific individual moments of extreme violence. Mm. And I think that makes a lot of difference to the outcomes, whether, for example, Jews escaping from concentration camps could find places of safety in the surrounding population or whether they would be given up and handed over when they got out. You know, if you look at escapes from concentration camps, that made a big, big difference to people's life chances afterwards, the the surrounding bystander population. So I think there's something very important going on there, but it's a lot more complicated than the term as though we're just talking about an individual would suggest. I think we have to talk about equality of social relations Mm. between people in a wider population. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that you're, you're absolutely right about victims. Um, you know, it's indisputable in, in a sense. You, on, the, on the edges, as it were, the odd individual might have been a victim and also, uh, let's say, as you said, denounced um, fellow prisoners or actors. A, a very good example is the capo, the kind of prisoner official within the concentration camp, which in that very sort of um, cynical way, the SS used some of the prisoners to enforce their own... Um, their own rules, and there's quite a literature on, on those. But overall, the big category of victim, I think, is mm. indisputable. And you can think of some um, individual perpetrators, if you like, so uh, who, 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 in a, something quite difficultly, quite difficult to explain the way in which someone um, uh, might say um, be a uh, be an SS officer who actually delivers. I forgot the guy's name now. Was it the guy? The guy who delivered um, gas to the to, to Auschwitz and then started telling people about it on the train mm. uh, and, and spreading the news and was clearly morally outraged, but carried mm. on doing it. Mm. Um, and uh, th- there are ways in which people 
to turn from one category into into another, as it were, a mm. bystander become a perpetrator. But I think you're right in the sense that the bystander is the most puzzling and most difficult of these categories. Um, and I wonder if you can explain how, or does your book explain, um, how people um, could know about these terrible murders going on, mass killings, gassings, shooting Jews at the pits, terrible cruelty in the camps and so on, and yet not do anything about it, yet not feel morally outraged mm-hmm. by it. That isn't a direct focus of this book. I touch on it in part one, and I touch on people's self-exculpatory narratives in part three, where I look Mm. at some of the people who are bystanders and how they sought to distance themselves from what it is they should have done and didn't do. Um, But if I were to give a very quick answer to that, I would say there are two quite different things going on. One is that a significant... And we're talking now just about the German population. I Mm. restrict this to the, the third. Reich, the the core Old Reich German population. Mm -hmm. One is that many people were complicit in the way in which the system developed and either benefited from certain developments, particularly the Aryanisation of Jewish property and so on, or were indifferent to the fate of those who were suffering. And that growth of indifference, I think, as a history, which is one of the things I'm trying to explore in my current book Mm -hmm. that I'm now working on. So that's on one side of it. On the other side, I think that passivity was also born of fear and knowledge of the consequences of repression and terror. You can see a lot of people who did feel sympathy with the victims of persecution, but had themselves had a brush, their husband was in a concentration camp because he'd been a communist, a socialist, or they'd stepped out of line and the lady next to him in the bread shop had denounced them to the Gestapo, or whatever it might be. So there was a considerable compliance born of coercion, if you like. And I I think the debates so far on consent versus coercion have been far too simplistic and dichotomous. Mm. I think a lot of the apparent consent, the apparent conformity is actually born of fear, terror and experiences of coercion. Um, Sometimes perhaps less justified than other times, but certainly Mm. the apparatus of terror was massive. So I think passivity was also born out of a growing sense of helplessness, Mm. a feeling, a lack of agency. Mm. And then in wartime, more and more, a concerned with your own, with your your family, your father, your brother, your son who is at the front, your family at home, um, people looking out for themselves, overridden as well by the notion that the fatherland was fighting yeah. for its survival. Yeah. So it's a very, very complex picture. I don't think it's morally simple in any way. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And one of the very strong, great strengths of this book, I think, the way it makes it clear, this was a dictatorship. It was run by terror. Um, and too many historians, I think, have forgotten that in recent years and talk about a, built, a regime built on consent, although, as you say, consent is meaningless unless it's freely given. Mm. Um, and, and w- w- of course, one recalls, um, one calls to mind Ian Kershaw's famous phrase, the road to Auschwitz was built by hate but paved with indifference. Yes. And I think it is, it is quite difficult to explain. Commitment to Germany, um, belief that you have to do what the state tells you, um, fear uh, mm-hmm. are all very important parts of that mm-hmm. but I mean I, I think it's clearly you don't feel quite satisfied with what you've done in this book because you're going to want to write about the, the, the so-called bystanders and I think that's a very important subject to tackle 
Um, I think we want to turn to uh, justice. Now, we all know about the great Nuremberg war crimes trial at the end of the at the end of the war, where the surviving Nazi leaders were put on trial by the Allies in the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, uh, people like uh, uh, Goering um, and, and Hess and, and Lai and Speer and so on. Uh, and I think there's some consciousness that is growing about, uh, or knowledge is, is growing about the other more specialised trials that followed that, put on by the, mainly by the Americans, uh, the judges' trial, the doctors' trial, the industrialists' trial, the Farben trial, uh, SS trials, and so on. Um, I think less is known, probably outside Germany, of the trials that the Germans themselves put on, from beginning with the Auschwitz trial in Frankfurt, and, and you described these. Um, you go into some detail about these uh, of SS, uh, SS officers in, in Frankfurt. Um, but there were many other trials. You, you mentioned some in Poland, but there were hundreds and hundreds in Poland, not in only Poland, but also in France, in Italy, and many other parts of Europe, because the doctrine was that the, the perpetrator had to be tried in the place, in the country where the crimes had taken place. There were thousands and thousands of these. The, the Dachau SS trial alone after the war <clears throat> of, of, of sort of smaller uh, SS officials, uh, as it were ones who are not top, top ranking but had still committed terrible atrocities, had over a thousand cases in, just in one big trial. And yet you uh, seem to be very dissatisfied with the judicial process at the end of the war. It comes through quite strongly. You, you seem to be quite angry, in fact, uh, that so many perpetrators escape justice. Um, and uh, there's a counter-argument here, which is that if you tried everybody, uh, then there'd be nobody left to run the courts or, or, or tend to the sick, or um, it, it was, in a sense, it's, it has been argued, I'm not necessarily saying that's my view, but it has been argued that in order to build society, rebuild society after the, world, after the war, you had to some extent to forget. Now, is that, is that an argument you would accept, or...? Okay, there are a lot of things in yeah, there. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. I think, insofar as I'm angry, or insofar as my anger comes across in academic prose, it's based on a perfectly justifiable indictment of what one might call the topography of justice and mm. failures of justice after the war and indeed over the subsequent decades. And I think there are several things um, that need highlighting. What I did in part two of the book was I compared and contrasted three successor states to the Third Reich, mm. justice in East Germany, West Germany and Austria. I have a brief paragraph saying lots of cases everywhere mm. else as well. So I take your point that Poland, France, Italy, etc. had cases and I mentioned those in yeah. passing yeah. but not in detail. But I wanted to focus on those three particular states and compare them a little bit more systematically. And what seems to me has not been done to date, and why I wanted to at least present a broad overview of it, was to show the waves of prosecution and the failures of prosecution in specific ways and what else was going on at the same time. So let me just select one or two points out of that. Um, 
after the war, immediately after the war, lots of little German and Austrian trials bringing Germans to court for small acts of injustice, very high on people's radar. Uh, Then a lull in the 50s, picked up again from the late 50s, complicated by the Cold War. And I think what would be the points I would want to bring out? I would want to bring out, first of all, there is a narrowing of who it is who is considered to be a perpetrator who's worth bringing to justice. And so in West Germany in particular, using the old criminal law definition of murder, you had to find somebody who was personally motivated engaging in excess brutality. This meant that, for example, in the Belgetz trial, the concentration camp, where hundreds of thousands had been herded into the gas chambers, only one of the dozen or so people who was put on trial was found guilty because the others had simply, quote, followed orders, obeyed orders, herding people into the gas chambers, and only one could plausibly be shown to have acted to some extent on his own motivation. You had to find somebody who was brutally beating up someone, beating them to death as an individual. That was murder. But herding hundreds into a gas chamber was not deemed murder under the criminal law in Germany in the 60s. So this does make me angry. This makes me very angry. Mm. Um, And the law has changed, as we know, since the Demjanjok case. So that's one thing. Um, The narrowing of the concept of perpetrator. Number two, the leaving out, willfully excluding huge ranges of professional groups from even consideration. Mm. The West German judiciary, who had been involved in countless death sentences in the People's Court in in the Volksgerichtshof in Mm. the Third Reich, excluded themselves from being the subject of justice Mm. because they said they were simply carrying out the law of the land at the time, so could not be investigated for this. So loads of lawyers in high places continue to be lawyers in high places having an influence on the post-war legal system. That annoys me. Um, People who were in the civil service, you mentioned earlier on the big tomes now being produced (coughs) investigating areas of the civil service, but they too completely evaded any serious legal scrutiny after the war. Um, So the leaving out of certain professional groups, I think, is a gross injustice. Thirdly, when you do look at professional groups that came under scrutiny at all, it's frequently the little people, the minions, who get brought to court, um, care assistants in sanatoria where the so-called euthanasia programme was carried out, nursing sisters who handed luminal or veronal, the the poisonous drugs, to the the children, the patients in the sanatoria, are brought to court and given two or three-year sentences. The doctors who ordered that, who were in charge of it, managed to evade justice by and large, Mm -hmm. huge numbers of them. So the the failure's there. And I think, finally, in my... um, Topography of injustice, which is what I'd rather look at as, uh, at mm. it as, um, is the gross disparity between the lucrative post-war careers and retirement on fat pensions of many people mm. who had profited massively, for example, from slave labour in the Third Reich or from positions in the civil service, who went on to lead long and um, well-heeled post-war lives. The disparity between that and the survivors who for years struggled to gain recognition and compensation, and for many it was far too little, far too 
late. I'm thinking here not only of the obvious Jewish victims or the people who worked in ghettos or the slave labourers who didn't get any compensation at all. Flick died with his empire intact, never paying a cent to survivors. Mm. Flick, the banker, yeah. Yeah, who yeah. invested and, in many, many yes. industrial enterprises that yes. made use of slave labour. Yes, yes. And yes. financed a yes. lot of the Nazi yes. enterprises. And concerns like Ige Farben or Heinkel, all these places which had made enormous profits on the backs of slave labour and really just resisted post-war legal proceedings and resisted attempts at compensation on the part of survivors. And then other groups like gay men who were still criminalised for a quarter of a century after the war who didn't even talk about it because they were so ashamed or if they did talk about it were just shoved back into prison because it was still a criminal offence. You know, so that, that injustice seems to me just massive and it is utterly pointless saying that of the millions who were involved in this system of violence, thousands were brought to court. Hmm. When Even when you're restricted to simply those statistics, West Germany, 106,000 people investigated, 6,000 brought to court, 4,000 yeah. sentenced. Yeah. Yeah. That is pathetic. Hmm. Auschwitz alone employed between six and 8,000 people hmm. in its time of operation fewer than 50 brought to court. You mm. know, it, it is really pathetic on mm. every count, on the percentage counts, on the evasions of justice count, and on the injustice mm. to other groups. So I think if, if a tone of anger comes out in my book, I think it's well-founded. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, it's very powerful, very persuasive. Well, I mean, in the end, you, you, you look at all these horrific crimes committed by the Nazis, and you do bring it home, I think, very powerfully to the reader, sheer levels of brutality and hatred and violence uh, that uh, Nazi crimes towards all these victim groups uh, involved, um, ending up, and of course, in the mass murder of, of, of six million, round about six million Jews, uh, the, the killing of, the, of mentally handicapped and mentally disabled people, of the gypsies in Tirama. Um, this is almost unimaginable, I think. Um, and you say the historians can't really explain why people participate in this in, in, in the end. Um, you think it's very difficult to explain, but, but shouldn't we sort of try? Yes, of course we should try, and I've just spent 650 yes. pages trying. <laughs> so, but, I no, mean, at I the end of them, you confess it's, you can't, yes. it's not No, succeed. I think there's a distinction. I think we can document, we can recount. I think we actually have a duty to bring this to yeah. some kind of form mm. and consciousness and to... to put it in a form which can communicate mm. what happened to people now. We've got the luxury and the benefit of the time and space to do the research mm. and to write. And so in that sense, yes, and I spent quite a long time on the so-called euthanasia programme. Yeah. It's another one that I think yeah. has not been looked at in sufficient detail, yeah. perhaps. Um, but so in that sense, yes, I think it's perfectly possible for us as historians to try and make an attempt to impose order on what we know about this, what we can understand, how we can interpret it. But we have to make creative choices about which voices we bring from the past mm. and what words we use to convey that. And those creative choices are producing something that is part of an ongoing conversation, but it can never be, in my view, in a deeper moral sense, 
an explanation because that I think still does evade understanding how could you know this has bugged me all my life so I don't think I'm going to have solved it in one book but how could the nation of Bach and Goethe um, you know this extraordinary place that could produce music and literature of those sorts how could it have allowed a man like Hitler and we can explain it we can explain it easily in many respects you know we can provide narratives which explain it but we still somehow deep down face this extraordinary question of how is it possible for people to actually do this and there we need so many different kinds of approaches and interpretations to try and do something which is even remotely adequate to the massive gigantuan proportions Mm. of this yeah it's the paradox of a man like Reinhard Heydrich, who was Himmler's number two and a key figure in, in perpetrating the Holocaust, uh, who at the same time, as he pushed it on, uh, was a talented amateur violinist who would weep when he was playing Bach. How do we yes. really reconcile those, yeah. those, those yeah. things? I mean, you've dealt the book you finished about two years ago, I think, because yeah. it always, you know, especially as a long book, it takes a long time to go through the whole publication, revision, copy editing, proofread, all of that kind of process of production. Um, so you weren't sort of really able to take account of the very recent rise of the self-styled alternative for Germany, mm-hmm. the far-right anti-immigrant party, and which is now the second most popular party mm-hmm. in the opinion polls after mm-hmm. Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats. And there are voices within the alternative for Germany that say we've got to we've got to stop feeling sorry about the past. We've got to move on. We should be proud of being German. There are even voices on its fringes that say uh, let's get rid of this what you call the culture of memorialization, which you see everywhere in, in Germany. Uh, there are even on the fringes some uh, anti-Semitic voices. So do you think this has marked a turning point in German attitudes? towards the past? Do you think it's now going to be swept under the carpet? Um, That's a complicated question. I think there are always waves in memorialisation. I think the wave of obsessive memorialisation of victims, which did more arguably for the second generation, the children and grandchildren of perpetrators perhaps, than it did for survivors and victims. The the wave that produced the Holocaust Memorial and all the little Stolpersteiner and the Mm. different memorials, I think that wave has come to an end. Right, so just the Stolpersteiner. A little stumbling stones, little cobblestones in the pavements giving the names and life dates of individuals who were victims of persecution. Mostly Jews, yeah, outside the houses that they formerly lived in. And there are now 80 or more than 90,000 of these in German cities. Yes, and I think they're very good in one sense because they remind you that these people came from everywhere, lived everywhere, and you just read the dates and you're just walking along shopping and you see suddenly, you know, so-and-so taken, deported to Riga, deported to Theresienstadt, whatever. So I think all of that was very, very important for a particular generation. But I think what we need to do now moving ahead is to understand more broadly the system which allowed this to happen and no longer to engage so much in mourning the victims. Those who are emotionally connected with this past will inevitably continue to mourn the victims. But I think for future generations, people who don't have an immediate sense of emotional connection, it's really important to develop a broader understanding. Now, looking at the 
I suppose one should say AFD rather than RFD. The alternative yes, for Germany. The yeah. alternative for Germany in more detail. That's a very interesting party because it began as a slightly odd conservative party bothered about the euro crisis and has developed increasingly into this more right-wing nationalist and quite a, a party harbouring quite dangerous elements, I think. Um and it is quite scary the way in which it has become the second largest, the official opposition party in Parliament. On the other hand, what should we have to be proud about? I think Germans today can legitimately legitimately be proud of Germany since unification. We haven't talked much about the GDR when we were talking about legal systems and so on, but I think since 1990, since unification, Germany has done an, um, achieved an amazing transformation, has become one of the strongest polities and not merely one of the strongest economies in Europe. Um, I think Angela Merkel has done extraordinary things for the way in which Germany has developed since she became Chancellor in coalition governments, I think it has to be admitted she's moved the Conservatives to the centre, the SPD to the centre. There have been a lot of shifts. But I think it is right that Germans now should be able to say, actually, we Germans in the last quarter of a century have been doing some very significant things in terms of the stabilisation and development of the future of Europe, for example. Yeah. So I don't think it's sweeping the past under the carpet to say it should be possible now to take pride in things that our Germany today has been doing, particularly since unification. But at the same time, I think we have to take a new look at what went on during the Nazi era and the post-war decades dealing with that era and not simply say, West Germany faced up to its past, West Germany confronted its past. It didn't. It hid the Nazis. It allowed them to reintegrate. It did not bring them to justice. And then, too late, it started to recognise the victims. Yeah, so what you're saying really is that it's perfectly possible to be proud of Germany with, uh, at the same time to feel a sense of responsibility mm. uh, about what happened in the Nazi period. Absolutely. Uh, but of course what is what is happening in parts of the AFD is exactly the opposite. They're saying in order to be proud of being German you have to forget about the yes. Nazis. And yes, that's, yes, that's yes of course I would reject that, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I didn't yeah. mean to imply that I was agreeing with the sure. AFD yeah. what I just said. <laughs> no, yeah. I, wouldn't think, I wouldn't dream yes. of claiming that. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, Mary. They're brilliant. And it's a brilliant book. I can recommend it very strongly. Published by Oxford University Press. That was Professor Mary Fulbrook in conversation with Professor Richard J. Evans. Mary's book, Reckonings, Legacies of Nazi Persecution and the Quest for Justice, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Oxford University Press. Meanwhile, Richard's latest book, a biography of Eric Hobsbawm is due to be published next month and is covered in the February edition of BBC History magazine. And listen out for a discussion of the book in this podcast soon. Mary and Richard's conversation also appears in print in the latest issue of BBC World Histories, which is on sale now in print and digital. Head to historyextra.com for more details of that. And that's about all for today. But we will be back on Monday to talk to Jenny Murray about some remarkable women from history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, 
don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 